This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about government surveillance, and already we should address some assumptions. When we hear about government surveillance, we have this ugly habit of imagining a surveillance net so enormous that because it collects information on so many of us, it can't concern itself personally with any of us. And I I get it. I, I do. It's hard to hear about abstracted Byzantine government surveillance and understand plainly where everyday people fit. The best example I have of this type of, let's just call it unintelligible surveillance, is in the United Kingdom. And to understand it, we have to talk about the ocean. Not a metaphor, the real ocean. With fish. Sitting on the ocean floor today, there are about 750,000 miles of thick physical cables that snake between continents. In those cables, which can be wrapped in layers of plastic and steel and tar, there are wispy, hair-strand-thin fiber optic lines that can deliver data at speeds that the human eye cannot physically register. That data is our internet. It is every type of internet traffic you can imagine. Our emails, our web browsing, our online shopping, our Zoom meetings, our doom scrolling, our gifts, and very likely our podcasts that you're listening to right now. These cables carry the internet at such a scale that it is incomprehensible. And I don't say that for effect. I mean, I looked up the numbers and they don't mean anything to us. They are not illustrative in any sense. It's like trying to picture the difference between one quadrillion stars in the universe and one quintillion stars. Those cables carry a veritable big bang of data, a yawning expanse of internet made and made over every single day. And in the 2000s, the United Kingdom's premier intelligence agency thought that the smartest way to find individual emails in that expanse was to collect nearly all of it from those cables. Like collecting every haystack in the world to find a single needle, like collecting the Grand Canyon to find a meddlesome lizard. The Government Communications Headquarters, or GCHQ, collected the internet. Now, the agency had somewhat of a strategy for narrowing down its data collection. It selected bearers, which are portions of those individual cables, and it applied filters and search criteria to weed out what it didn't want. But Everything else that matched, every email, every chat message, a quick unfun fact here, there was at least one four-year period where we know that the GCHQ collected still images every five minutes from individuals' private webcams when they used a Yahoo webcam application. Yeah, all of that was collected, set aside, and stored for future searches on the off chance that maybe, maybe one piece of data could be relevant at a later date, beneficial in some intelligence operation or not beneficial and just kept somewhere. 
we've talked about data retention on this show, right? About backups, about properly cataloging everything you have for an up-to-date inventory. And now imagine that work for years worth of internet activity. I have trouble comprehending simply how much data that is. Like literally how much data is that? It, it isn't measured in gigabytes. Obviously that's too small, not terabytes. I mean, we have consumer laptops today that can be expanded to a terabyte of storage. So exabytes, which are each one billion gigabytes. I mean, it has to be. And then where does that data go? As in physically, where does it go? Where is it stored? How is it stored? How much does the storage physically weigh? And how can any search tool feasibly comb through it all? What poor team has to manage the GCHQ communications database search tool. Consider that with a poor data retention policy, which is highly likely for a government agency whose overarching surveillance strategy was, again, collect the internet, presumably that search tool has to index more data than Google. What I'm trying to detail here is the logistical workings of a surveillance apparatus. This is a multifaceted, extraordinarily complex, organizational nightmare of surveillance. And it's the image we often think about when we hear about government surveillance. It's what makes it so hard to answer that earlier question, where do everyday people fit into this problem? Those people, those everyday individuals with names and careers and families, those people fit into today's story. Today's story isn't about that first type of government surveillance. Today's story is different, not only because we do not have a guest today, so it's just me again, folks, buckle up, but because the type of government surveillance we're talking about today is highly targeted. Isn't the expanse, it isn't the Grand Canyon, it isn't finding the needle in the haystack. It's the needle itself working its way under your nails. Today's story is about the exceedingly powerful, invasive spyware, Pegasus. If Pegasus is not the most technologically advanced piece of spyware available today, it's at least the most popular piece of spyware available today that technologically can do what it does. Pegasus obliterates mobile defenses on both Androids and iPhones. It is not just a keyhole peek into a device, it is the key that, without notice, opens the device. Once installed, Pegasus can access files, it can retrieve photos and videos, it can listen to calls and voicemails, it can track GPS locations, both historical and live, it can read text messages, it can pry into emails, it can commandeer a device's camera and its microphone, turning them on so as to view and listen to a victim's surroundings. Shockingly, it can also view messages that are sent through end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps. How does this differ from stalkerware, you might ask, the malware threat sometimes used in situations of domestic abuse? 
Stalkerware is comparatively far, far easier to catch. Many cybersecurity vendors detect multiple Stalkerware-type apps. Stalkerware is also less powerful. I have tested some Stalkerware and found that the capability to read encrypted messages was entirely non-existent. But importantly, Stalkerware also frequently requires a person to physically access a device to install it. They have to have it on them. Pegasus can be installed remotely, sent through a text message, and as of recent, a user doesn't even have to interact with that text message to be infected. All a Pegasus operator needs then to start spying on someone is little more than their phone number. In speaking with the Washington Post last year, Timothy Summers, a former cybersecurity engineer for the U.S. government and the current director of IT at Arizona State University, said about Pegasus, this is nasty software, like eloquently nasty. And with it, Summers added, one could spy on almost the entire world population. Before we get into who has been spied on using Pegasus, we should first understand who made it, who buys it, and how it gets onto phones. In the mid-2000s, two former Israeli classmates were living the Silicon Valley startup dream, but in Israel. Shalev Julio and Omri Lavi had been renting office space near Tel Aviv, and they'd found little success so far with their first company, Ventures. But around 2010, Julio and Lavi had designed a tool called Communitake, which helped tech support workers take control of customers' devices with those customers' permission to fix any technology issues. It's something you've likely experienced before, actually. You have an IT issue, you call your company's support line, and sometimes the person on the phone takes control of your machine to speed up the troubleshooting. Communitake was doing fine for a while, but one day, Julio received a call from a European intelligence agency. The agency was reportedly interested in making Communitake more powerful. It was interested in taking control of devices without permission. After that call, Julio and Levy found a third business partner to grow their company, a man named Niv Carmi. Carmi had past experience in Mossad, the primary intelligence agency of Israel. In 2010, the three men formally launched their new company, NSO Group, named after their first initials, Niv, Shalev, Omri. One year later, the first iteration of Pegasus launched, but initial sales were reportedly slow. According to a recent investigation from the New York Times, many nations were hesitant to purchase Pegasus because of a concern that the program itself may contain even deeper spyware within, giving the company, and perhaps by proxy, the Israeli government, a private view into the affairs of Pegasus customers. So Julio made a few core assurances about how his company and its product would function. One, NSO would not operate Pegasus, only its clients would. Two, NSO would only sell Pegasus to governments, not to individuals. 
Three, NSO would review and have the power to restrict which governments could purchase Pegasus. And four, NSO would place the sale of Pegasus under the purview of Israel's Defense Export Controls Agency. So as to give the Israeli government a firm hand in how the spyware was sold and approved for customers. This structure is still in place today. If Israel's Defense Export Controls Agency does not grant a license to a potential Pegasus customer, that customer cannot buy the spyware. The structure has also been cited repeatedly to rebut any outside criticisms. If any customer of Pegasus is using the tool to do anything other than investigate legitimate crime or stop terrorist threats, well, that's not NSO Group's fault. They don't operate Pegasus. NSO Group has also said that should a Pegasus customer use the spyware to violate human rights, then NSO Group can revoke that country's access to the tool, something it claims it has done before. These promises propelled Pegasus forward, and the company eventually secured its first contract with a major government, Mexico. The U.S. neighbor was losing a fight against drug cartels, which were equipping their members at the time with the then-popular BlackBerry mobile phones that included a type of encrypted messaging app. Those messages were indecipherable to Mexican intelligence, but Pegasus, as was promised to the Mexican government, could overcome that. In the country's earliest days with the spyware, agents with Mexico's Center for National Investigation gave a Pegasus consul a phone number connected to a known member of the Sinaloa cartel. And in turn, Pegasus retrieved a wealth of new information. Pegasus worked. The intelligence agents could all of a sudden see the content of the BlackBerry messages traded on that device and the locations of where the device had been. In speaking with the New York Times, a former leader of Mexico's Center for National Investigation said, Suddenly we started to see and hear anew. It was like magic. Magic on the outside, maybe, yes. But on the inside, Pegasus is today the work of hundreds of NSO employees, many of whom have been trained at the highest levels of cyber intelligence and espionage within the Israeli military. And much of what these trained specialists do day in and day out, is search for zero-day vulnerabilities that could affect popular consumer devices like the latest iPhones and Android phones. Zero-day vulnerabilities are essentially undiscovered vulnerabilities in software tools that, if first discovered by threat actors, can be used to deliver malware. Now, Malware itself doesn't have zero-day capabilities. It's not like that. Again, it's instead that a tool like iMessage or, or WhatsApp has a vulnerability within it that, if exploited, could be used to deliver malware. As dangerous as that is, zero days are also a bit of a double-edged sword because once they're exploited, if they draw enough attention in an attack, that vulnerability likely gets patched. It's like when you find ants coming into your kitchen. You find the source, a hole in a floorboard, a window with an imperfect seal, and you responsibly plug it up. Zero days are then the one shot for a malicious hacker to get in. There are no second chances. Unless, of course, someone has found two zero days. According to the New York Times, NSO Group has discovered a, quote, multitude 
end quote, of zero-day vulnerabilities that have already been used to deliver Pegasus. Should Pegasus draw too much attention, like we said, to any single attack and have one of its infection paths blocked, well, NSO Group can just rely on another vulnerability that it's already found. In fact, in just the past couple of years, NSO Group has done just that, allegedly delivering Pegasus once through a vulnerability in WhatsApp in which users received a call from an unknown number, which they didn't even have to answer to trigger a Pegasus install, and twice through Apple's encrypted messaging service, iMessage. The real threat with these latest attacks, though, is that they also work without any user interaction. They are what are called zero-click attacks. At least previously, Pegasus was delivered through text messages that required a user to click a link, which would then start a chain of zero-day exploits that could jailbreak an iPhone and then lead to a Pegasus install. But that is no longer the case. We now, frighteningly, live in an era of the zero-click Pegasus attack. To understand just how complex and sophisticated these attacks are, let's look at the most recent exploit, dubbed Forced Entry, studied in depth by the University of Toronto's Citizen Lab and Google's Project Zero team. Forced Entry is insane. It isn't a work of social engineering like clever phishing scams. It isn't a link that retrieves a payload from a malicious website. It's not anything that you or I could do period. And I say that without fully knowing your technical capabilities, but I am still willing to make that bet. Forced entry relies on a vulnerability in how the default iPhone messaging app, iMessage, handles the delivery and receipt of GIFs. Yes, GIFs. So on iPhones, GIFs sent through iMessage are handled by the iPhone in a strange way in that the iPhone will actually render any source image GIF it receives to an entirely new GIF, which is then displayed to a user at the end destination. Before that rendering can take place, the iPhone first has to understand what it's received. It does this by parsing the image and sort of doing a little bit of guesswork through what's called the image I.O. framework. Uh, Essentially, the iPhone is just trying to understand what type of data it received so it knows what to do with it and how to display it. But critically, a piece of data can be sent over iMessage with the extension .gif while it doesn't actually have to be a GIF. So, presumably, you could send something else, disguised, that if you fooled the iPhone into thinking it was a GIF, would still be processed. The obvious attack vector here, according to Google's Project Zero, would be to send a hidden, malicious PDF. Those used to be quite popular to send malware because you can customize PDFs using JavaScript. But the iPhone doesn't interpret JavaScript when it's trying to parse a PDF that it's received. It is smarter than that, almost entirely because of the known risk. So NSO Group found a workaround within a popular PDF compression standard that the iPhone does use. 
The compression standard is called JBIG2. I am sorry it has that name. It doesn't make today's episode any easier to understand, but JBIG2 is a method. It's like a set of instructions on how to make big PDFs small. But that method is vulnerable, we learned, to an extremely novel attack. What NSO Group managed to do is trigger what's called an integer overflow attack when JBIG2 processes a piece of data that the iPhone first thinks might be a GIF. There's a lot there. (laughs) So integer overflows typically can cause an error. It's like when a calculator cannot display its max character limit plus one. But to understand forced entry, we're going to have to get even a little more basic than a calculator, I want you to imagine doing a simple addition problem by hand. Let's say you have in front of you a math test printed on a piece of paper. That math test gives you one addition problem, 10 plus 15. The problem is written vertically. So the numbers are stacked, right? Like we all saw in grade school. So at the top, it's the number 10 and right below it, the number 15. And there's an addition symbol to the left. And then there's a solid line below everything. And below that, right, you put your answer. It's 25, by the way. With forced entry, what's happening is that the equation that we're talking about here, 10 plus 15, that equation is being manipulated so that it is, say, 10 plus 90. Let's again go back to grade school and remember what happens when the numbers we're adding get too big. We just work in the margins, right? So 10 plus 90, you've got zero plus zero starting at the right side. Well, that's zero. One plus nine moving over to the left, one column, right? That's 10. Well, what you do there is you drop the zero down and you carry the one over to the new column and you drop it all the way down and you get a hundred, right? But that math, that carrying the one over, that's happening outside the bounds of the original space where the equation is written. To take it a little further, Remember any math test that you've done where you're writing on the sides of the paper to figure something small out, right? You don't use that marginal space for the primary problem. You're just kind of using it to check things quickly, small things, making sure they're right. Somewhat remarkably, forced entry forces the iPhone to use the margins of its memory to do additional computations that are not related at all to the intended compression of a PDF. Force entry sees 10 plus 10 and it says, actually, make that 10 plus 90. And then it says, hey, while we're here in the margins, here's a bunch of other stuff you should do. The PDF compression method is also corrupted during this process, which allows the hackers to change what data is being referenced and what commands should be run. And the new commands, by the way, are basic. They are like running an abacus inside of an iPhone, but they work. The technical details of all this are far better explained by Google's Project Zero. They wrote, JBIG2 doesn't have scripting capabilities, but when combined with a vulnerability, 
it does have the ability to emulate circuits of arbitrary logic gates operating on arbitrary memory. So why not just use that to build your own computer architecture and script that? That's exactly what this exploit does. Using over 70,000 segment commands defining logical bit operations, they define a small computer architecture with features such as registers and a full 64-bit adder and comparator, which they use to search memory and perform arithmetic operations. It's not as fast as JavaScript, but it's fundamentally, computationally equivalent. And the big takeaway here from Project Zero is, based on our research and findings, we assess this to be one of the most technically sophisticated exploits we've ever seen, further demonstrating that the capabilities NSO provides rival those previously thought to be accessible to only a handful of nation states. This is one exploit for one vulnerability. It was patched. NSO group, from what we know, has many more. Do you remember that fellow? Timothy Summers, the director of IT at Arizona State University. Remember how he said that Pegasus was eloquently nasty? This is what that phrase means. And Summers actually had more to say to the Washington Post. He went on explaining... There's not anything wrong with building technologies that allows you to collect data. It's necessary sometimes. But humanity is not in a place where we can have that much power just accessible to anybody. Here, NSO Group would say that Pegasus isn't available to just anybody, only those that get an approval license from the Israeli government. But the list of those approved clients is still fairly long. Known purchasers of Pegasus include the governments of India, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, Azerbaijan, Mexico, the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Hungary, and Rwanda. There's one more country that we will get to, I promise. Oh boy. But we need to talk about first what some of these other countries have done with Pegasus. And before we talk about that, we should also make it abundantly clear. Just because you don't live in these countries, just because you've heard potentially alarming news about what takes place inside these countries, it doesn't make these countries unique in how they utilize surveillance. It doesn't mean that other countries don't also surveil people in ways that, at least legally, violate human rights. When the United Kingdom collected vast quantities of the internet, it took years before the European Court of Human Rights concluded in 2018 that parts of that surveillance apparatus violated both the right to privacy and the right to freedom of expression. Powerful surveillance tools in nearly every example I can honestly think of tend to always lead to abuse. The following stories are just what we know about Pegasus abuse. In February of 2018, the daughter of the ruler and sheikh of Dubai, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, tried to escape her father's kingdom. The daughter, a princess, Princess Latifa Al Maktoum, shared in a privately recorded video details of the abuse that she and her sisters faced from her father. Roughly 30 years old at the time, Princess Latifa said she was forbidden from driving herself anywhere or traveling. 
She said her father would, quote, kill people, end quote, to protect his reputation as a champion of women's rights and a sensitive poet. She said he'd burned down entire houses to destroy evidence that would reveal his true nature. And she shared how deeply affected she was by the escape attempt of her older sister, who managed to flee to London in 2000, hiding in a hostel for weeks until she was found and taken by force in Cambridge. She was flown back to Dubai, and later, in a letter sent to an immigration lawyer, she said she was imprisoned and forcibly tranquilized. Only 18 at the time of her capture, Princess Latifa's sister has still not been publicly seen. Leaving Dubai, then, posed an enormous known threat to the princess. She had to plan an airtight getaway. She and a friend began their mission at a cafe, where they first ditched their cell phones in a restroom. She then slid herself into the trunk of a black sedan that raced to a separate vehicle, a jeep, which took her and several close associates to a beach along the Arabian Sea. Princess Latifa then hopped into a small boat, which launched and broke against the waves, traveling for 16 miles, at which point she and her team switched to water scooters to make one of the last legs of their journey, to a yacht called the Nostromo. Eight days later, she was captured. She screamed as government operatives boarded the yacht, shoot me here, don't take me back. In the years since her capture, at least two of the princess's friends have been hacked by Pegasus. David High, who said he secretly spoke with the princess over text messages, learned that in 2020, his iPhone was infected. The culprit? The popular theory is the princess's father, the Sheik. If true, it wouldn't be the Sheik's first run-in with Pegasus. In 2019, one of the Sheik's former wives, Princess Haya bint Hussein, also left Dubai, also to London, and one month later, she filed for the sole custody of her and her husband's two children. In 2021, the High Court of Justice of London granted her that sole custody, but it also heard evidence about how Princess Haya's phone was hacked. The court ruled that Pegasus was used against Princess Haya and that it was ordered, quote, with the express or implied authority, end quote, of the Sheik. The court also ruled that Pegasus was used to at least target the phones of Haya's lawyers, a personal assistant, and two members of her security team. This is the point in the story where we explain how we know what we know about Pegasus. Nearly all of the reporting for today's episode comes from a series of damning revelations grouped into one major journalistic effort published last July called The Pegasus Project. Led by a French reporting nonprofit called Forbidden Stories, The Pegasus Project lifted the lid on today's most popular spyware. And it all started with a data leak. In 2020, the reporters at Forbidden Stories began digging into a leak of 50,000 phone numbers. The phone numbers were from around the world, and next to the phone numbers on this long list were timestamps, too. Now, in this day and age of data leaks, 50,000 phone numbers isn't actually that big, but the reporters believed they had something remarkable on their hands. A Pegasus targeting list. 
Remember that from what we know, Pegasus only requires a phone number to be delivered. What the reporters had to do then to prove that this was a targeting list was to find the people who these phone numbers belong to. And then they had to confirm if Pegasus was installed on their devices. That kind of work used to be easier when Pegasus infections left some obvious traces, like an unsolicited text message with a malicious link in it. But with zero-click infections, the journalists needed to perform forensic analyses on any devices they could get their hands on. With the help of Amnesty International Security Lab and the University of Toronto Citizen Lab, remember they found forced entry, the journalists were able to do just that. On a few devices where Pegasus was manually detected by Amnesty International Security Lab, researchers were able to determine that the time of infection very closely matched the timestamps logged next to each phone number entry on the list. And on the list itself, well, the reporters identified a wealth of believed targets. According to the Pegasus Project, quote, Reporters were able to identify more than 1,000 people spanning more than 50 countries through research and interviews on four continents. Several Arab royal family members, at least 65 business executives, 85 human rights activists, 189 journalists, and more than 600 politicians and government officials, including cabinet ministers, diplomats, and military and security officers. The numbers of several heads of state and prime ministers also appeared on the list. Brief aside here, those heads of state are France's president, Emmanuel Macron, Iraq's president, Barham Salid, and South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa. Three prime ministers are also on the list, Pakistan's Imran Khan, Egypt's Mustafa Morbali, and Morocco's most recent former prime minister, Saladin al-Othmani, Seven other former prime ministers are also on the list, and the timestamps next to their phone numbers show dates that match when all of them were in office. And finally, predictably, Princess Latifa's number also shows up on the list. But back to the Pegasus Project's reporting on, well, reporters. Quote, among the journalists whose numbers appear on the list, which dates back to 2016, are reporters working overseas for several leading news organizations, including a small number from CNN, the Associated Press, Voice of America, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Bloomberg News, Le Monde in France, the Financial Times in London, and Al Jazeera in Qatar. NSO Group has denied that the list of 50,000 phone numbers is in any way a list of targets, and it has repeatedly claimed that the reporters misinterpreted the data leak. But if the numbers aren't targets, the end result isn't any better, because once reporters managed to retrieve dozens of phones for forensic analysis, they found signs of successful or attempted hacking by Pegasus spyware on 37 devices out of 67. If those numbers are not a targeting list, then that means a somewhat random sample of journalists and activists and political dissidents that more than 50% of them just had been targeted by Pegasus. Here are those people's stories. 
In May 2021, Pegasus was silently implanted onto the iPhone 11 of Claude Meunier, the wife of the political activist Naama Asfari, who has been jailed and allegedly tortured in Morocco. Between March 2018 and May 2021, Pegasus was used to hack into the phone of reporter Khadija Ismailova, whose investigative work has revealed corruption within Azerbaijan's ruling family. Speaking of Azerbaijan, the reporter Sevin Shvakit-Gizi, who reported on voting irregularities in the country's recent elections, had her phone infected with Pegasus in 2019 and 2020. And speaking of reporters, investigative journalist Luneg Produ of Mediapart and Mediapart's editor Edwi Plunel, the Indian co-founders of the online reporting outlet The Wire, Siddharth Varadarajan and M.K. Vanu, and two Hungarian reporters for the outlet Direct 36, Sabor Spanyi and Andras Sabo, were all directly infected with Pegasus spyware. Separately, Hanan El-Atar, the wife of murdered Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi, had her Android phone targeted with Pegasus six months before her husband's death. And Khashoggi's separate fiancé, Hatija Jinyas, had her phone successfully hacked by Pegasus after Khashoggi's death. And we're almost done. In July and August of 2016, Pegasus was sent through malicious text messages to the Mexican government's health scientist, Dr. Simon Barquera, and two nonprofit directors, Alejandro Calvillo and Luis Encarnacion, whose only shared commonality was, and I am not making this up, that they all supported a soda tax in Mexico. This is what I meant when I said that nearly every example I have of a powerful surveillance tool in anyone's hands has led to abuse. These aren't stories of terrorist attacks being stopped or drug cartels being broken apart or crime. (laughs) Like, let's start with an extremely low bar here, crime. These aren't stories of investigating or preventing or solving or addressing criminal activity. These are stories of the everyday people with names, with careers, with families, who did something, who spoke up in a way, who lived in a way that someone else didn't like. It wasn't wrong what they did, it's just that they weren't liked by someone more powerful than them. And their punishment for that was to have their privacy invisibly invaded their every move tracked, their every message read and analyzed, and often that information that was stolen from them was weaponized to bring up charges, to put people in jail, to stop them from doing the thing they did. And let's just get to it here. Some of these people did nothing more than love someone. Claude Manier, Hanan el Atar. Hatija Genius, they married someone or said yes to marrying someone in the future. And for Hatija, that wedding never came. Her fiancé was brutally murdered. And days later, her phone was hacked by Pegasus. What vile thirst this tool feeds to rob us even in grief. We are at the last part of our episode, and earlier in our story, I mentioned that one more country has purchased Pegasus, and if you discerned 
anything from my tone, you could probably tell who it was. It was the United States. You may have noticed that in the list of targets and known victims of Pegasus, there weren't any Americans. According to the New York Times, that's because, and this reporting from them is the first time it's been said, so it's kind of big, Pegasus was built specifically to not work on American devices. Uh, Reportedly, the Israeli government did not want to anger the U.S. by letting other countries, other Pegasus customers, spy on U.S. citizens. But that setup, it also meant that NSO Group couldn't sell Pegasus to the U.S. government for purposes of domestic spying, essentially the most popular and powerful spyware tool in the world couldn't help one of the most powerful countries spy on its own citizens. America couldn't spy on Americans, not with Pegasus. So in around 2019, NSO Group delivered a presentation to U.S. officials on a new type of Pegasus, a Pegasus that could crack American devices. NSO Group built this new tool and called it Phantom. And for two years, the U.S. government deliberated on whether its use was legal. Was it allowed? The U.S. government eventually declined to deploy Phantom. But during that entire two-year discussion, the FBI had already previously purchased Pegasus for what it eventually claimed was testing. According to an FBI spokeswoman who spoke with the New York Times, the agency will routinely test new technology, quote, not just to explore a potential legal use, but also to combat crime and to protect both the American people and our civil liberties. That means we routinely identify, evaluate, and test technical solutions and services for a variety of reasons, including possible operational and security concerns they might pose in the wrong hands, end quote. That in-depth testing reportedly cost roughly $5 million. So plainly, our government paid for Pegasus. And that's a little at odds with the Biden administration's decision last year to put NSO Group on the so-called entity list, which means that U.S. companies can no longer do business with NSO Group, which does pose a threat to NSO Group's business. The company can no longer rent web servers from Amazon, for example, or I don't know, I guess if they want to buy new computers, they can't buy like MacBooks with the company credit card. It still seems like they could buy aftermarket things. Anyways, there are tons of reasons to be upset with the development of a Pegasus for America. But those exact same reasons should apply to the development of Pegasus overall. We have proof that Pegasus has been used for petty Bats. We have proof that Pegasus has been used to monitor an ex-wife who is taking her kids away from an allegedly abusive husband. And we have proof that after someone ordered the murder of a Washington Post columnist, someone else thought it prudent to spy on his grieving fiancé. And importantly, I think we have more than enough proof now to realize that NSO Group's refusal to sell Pegasus to individuals and only to governments It doesn't really mean anything for individuals who use the power of their governments for their personal issues. In other words, it doesn't matter when you sell Pegasus to a government when a dictator is that government. I am glad that the U.S. government chose not to use Phantom in any way and that it refused to use Pegasus for, I suppose, overseas spying, which I'm still a little surprised about, honestly, but 
just because some of us might be safe from this threat does not make it okay. I have said before, and I will say it again, your level of privacy and your level of safety through that privacy should not be determined by where you were born. Pegasus is harming people around the world. It is leveraging an entirely unfair system of global surveillance where our privacy is determined through a regional roll of the dice. Maybe you live somewhere with laws preventing this type of surveillance, but maybe you live somewhere ruled by an autocrat who cares more about their power than anything else. And to drop Pegasus into that world... I do not believe that such an unjust tool could ever provide justice in this unjust system. That's our show. Thank you to all of the reporting done today by the Pegasus Project and the forensic work completed and detailed by Amnesty International Security Lab and the University of Toronto Citizen Lab. And a big thank you to Google's Project Zero for writing a thorough breakdown of an exploit that on its own would 100% elude me. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Mauerbytes Labs at blog.mauerbytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>